0: This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In podcast network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Welcome to another exciting edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, the professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello,
1: everybody. How are you all tonight?
0: And tonight's show, we are going to be looking at Ronnie Yu's 1993 classic, The Bride with White Hair. We're also going to be providing a snack pack of further watching for the new Godzilla movie. And Stephen has also got another tale from the dark side of Asian cinema. But to kick things off, as always, we have to ask the question of what you've been watching. So, Stephen, I mean, it's exciting month that we've just obviously sort of had in this sort of uh, recording period uh netflix have released a whole bunch of titles most keenly, the wandering earth has hit netflix to surprisingly little fanfare i was expecting this to be you know a new battle royale sort of title uh but it's just sort of been released nothing's really happened despite being like the third highest grossing movie of uh this year and we also finally got snowpiercer here in the uk you know after years and years of having to get creative if we want to watch it over here it's finally managed to get distribution over here via Netflix UK so uh, what's been holding your interest though
1: um well I also noticed that Snowpiercer was on Netflix and nearly fell off my chair <laughs> I mean we've been speaking about this since before the podcast began um I've, I've got my nice uh German blu-ray of it and I actually remember seeing it in Hong Kong is where I watched it the first time. So to see it finally sneak on Netflix is, is is kind of interesting. It's a interesting film. Um, have I watched anything Asian-wise? Not an awful lot um, that I can think of. Um, obviously this month we've had the biggest movie of all time in terms of box office in the final Avengers film. Um, so I sat through three hours of that. Um, You can go and listen to my podcast if you want to know what I thought of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I've just been picking up really weird things. I've been sort of going back through the the films that I've missed for sort of strange and weird reasons. So um, I watched Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Um, I also watched two Fast and Furious films, um, which is not something I would say I'd normally do. But I've decided to watch them back to front. So I started with number eight and I've watched number seven as well. Um, I'm not sure where this is going to lead me to or even why I'm doing it that way. But, you know, it's. It's dumb entertainment, isn't it?
0: Yeah. um, I think it's, what, 5? is where they finally figured out what they wanted to do, where it's sort of, like, become a bit of a spy franchise. 3 is interesting. I mean, it does interesting things, and that's only cheaper in it. So, obviously, it has that appeal, and not only the Tokyo setting and the Drift setting, so you obviously got those initial D sort of uh, tie-ins there. But, I mean, the first two are what they are. Um, the, the fourth one's, again, pretty much the same, but I think it's really around five that they sort of figured out what they wanted to do and uh, found a way to tie it all together into its own little multiverse, because that's what we like now. We like everything to be tied together, to have a verse, which, you know, is a good thing, as in when we look at, like, the legendary monster verse, or it can be, you know, uh, overwhelming monster, Goliath of a money-making machine when we look at the Marvels in the universe. Um, more so since Disney got hold of it, so but I know, we I mean with the Marvel movies I want to, I want a break now. I want there to be like a little break of like a year or something, just so I can miss it. And um I don't think we're we're gonna get that, so we continue well, the path of oversaturation.
1: Well, we have the Spider Man film obviously in a, oh, yeah, that's in a cool. month a month or so's time, which I, I I kind of always see as a <clears throat> it's a bit of a side project anyway but then I don't think we've got anything then for the rest of the year so it would be a nice break although no doubt DC are putting mm. out a couple of films aren't they so you know if if you're not down on that uh, Marvel versus DC thing there's going to be lots of superhero stuff still um, I'm a comic book fan through and through and even though I'm getting a bit exhausted <laughs> mm. and I can promise you sitting down for three hours watching a watching a film um, that is actually quite good, but I would never, I can see of no occasion where I'll ever watch that film again. And that's my problem with it. It has no rewatchability whatsoever. It has no, I've got, I cannot conceive of a situation where I think I'll pull that off my off my um, DVD bookshelves and say, yeah, I'm going to spend three hours watching this apropos of nothing. Um,
0: the Christmas Day movies, aren't they? When they you're like are. full of but turkey and. And but it only move.
1: exists. It only exists as a bookend to twenty-one previous movies. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> it's it, it, it. You know, it's a broad continue, It's obviously a continuation of the previous film, um, and it and it's very smartly playing off some of the other films and blah blah blah. But I can pick up one of the other films. I could pick up a Captain America film or a, an Iron Man film and watch it on its own for its own. Um, on its own merits that film is utterly unwatchable on its own merits so uh yeah may have made a billion dollars but uh i wonder how we'll think about it in a few years time
0: okay and did you actually watch wonder enough when it hit netflix i mean this third biggest movie if had been for captain marvel and obviously endgame it would be the number one grossing movie of the year
1: no i haven't watched it um because i gotta be honest with you um asian sci-fi doesn't usually do much for me and the whole general conceit sound is so stupid <laughs> i ignored it however i won't be able to ignore it forever and um i'll probably catch it but yeah i'm i'm not a huge fan of mainland chinese blockbusters and certainly not when they are sci-fi based
0: I mean, I've, I personally really loved it. I got an absolute kick out of it. And I mean, I love the fact as well that it's not just a standard sci-fi disaster movie. I mean, yes, it's obviously set up like Armageddon um, in the fact that, you know, the, the sun is dying. So we're going to shift the earth using these giant boosters um, and find a better solar system to be part of. In turn, creating this whole new ice age and basically we find that the earth several years down the line earth is now on course to crash into jupiter so it's down to both uh this these astronauts on the space station that are guiding the earth and uh this sort of ragbag team of rescue workers to try and get these generators back up and working on on earth and i mean it's directed by frank guo and as i said it's just a big budget uh, sci-fi epic spectacle it's just even if you do, this is why I'm surprised them being not been picked anymore, because it sort of plays in that same level as Battle Royale in the fact that you don't have to be into like Asian cinema or foreign cinema and, and the fact that it's sort of like subtype is very not an issue because it's so easy to follow it's just so quick paced and action packed and at the same time it draws in elements like 2001 space odyssey sunshine Wages of fear and to an extent like william fred Quinn's remake of Wages of fear sorcerer and it crafts this much deeper experience than the summer box office concept would really have you believe And it's it's kind of a shame that it's not got picked up and i mean i've been pushing and pushing this movie i've been talking about it over on movies and tea where we had it as one of our picture on on the Friday Film Club and anyone I uh, sort of been speaking to I've been tr- really sort of plugging to, for people to check it out because it's just a really fun ride and one that I had a lot of fun with and I mean I watched this and I watched Snowpiercer sort of back to back and Snowpiercer again totally worth the wait I really got a kick out of Snowpiercer um really sort of grimy sort of blue collar sort of sci-fi elements and I love the concept of these Characters being on this train, this train which holds like the last remnants of humanity, and because it's got a perpetual engine, it it just <coughs> prevents the globe. Um, and that, depending on where you are in the carriage, depend like determines your sort of status in society. It features Tilda Swindon with a Yorkshire accent, which is something I didn't know I wanted to see, but I'm all the happy I've seen it now. Reminding me that Yorkshire accents in sci-fi is something that we should really be pushing for um, as we go forward, but. Yeah, I mean, Snowpiss, so I really, really enjoyed, and I'm glad that as folks here in the UK can now finally get to enjoy it. I know often, like Gentlemen's Guide to, the, to Midnight Cinema, there was a huge uh, amount of buzz when it came out. And uh, as I say, it's just a shame that it got caught up in that whole Weinstein distribution deal, which uh, meant it got quite in limbo here for the UK, and it's just great that Netflix UK finally broke that cycle.
1: Yeah, hear, here. I mean, it's um, it's a film that's subtle as a tin of spam in terms of its use of metaphor and such like. That. It's got a really fantastic cast. Chris Evans is really, I think, quite good in it. Mm, um, definitely. Uh, and, and there's a couple of familiar faces from Korean cinema, obviously that we that pop up later on. Um, yeah, it, it's it it if to me it reminds me of that sort of old seventies sci-fi. Um, not just about the sort of being set in a train, but the fact that it's got sort of social. Uh, social interests in it so you, know, you could pair it with something like Silent Running or Logan's Run or something like that um, but with a bit of a more of a modern spin on it
0: Yeah um, On the general catch up side of things though um, I also checked out Return to the Six Chamber which is a follow up to 36 Chamber of from 1980 uh, Gordon Lou vehicle from the Shaw Brothers it's Many people say it's like a comedy remake of the first film uh, where we basically got this, this common who pretends to be a Shaolin monk and uh, gets beaten up by the corrupt bosses of this dye factory. Um, so goes off to the Shaolin temple to get trained and in turn basically gets, you know, he gets the uh, Mr. Miyagi style of uh, Kung Fu training, should we say, where he's inversely learning all these Shaolin skills by doing menial tasks such as uh, putting up scaffolding and, um, you know, made to fetch water and things, and all the time he's, like, seeking, he's like unwittingly learning all these uh, Shaolin skills for the inevitable final showdown with the corrupt bosses. Um, it's a lot of fun, even though it does feature hateo uh, hey Ho, he with some really bizarre looking false teeth and Gordon Lowe's never been the strongest when it's come to comedy in Kung Fu so, thankfully his martial arts skills are just as top notch as always, even if his comedy skills are a little hit and miss um, and finally the last one I've sort of been playing catch up with is The Villainess in 2017 a film that was super amped to to see when it came out, I went and bought the DVD and it sat in the watch pile since, until recently when I finally got a chance to see it and. It was one of those picks I was going to choose for the show, and now I've seen it. I'm not sure there really is a huge amount to really discuss there. As what it felt like, and I know we talked about this off air, is that it was basically <coughs> the, the Korean version of Akita. And while the action scenes all are very inventive and look kind of cool, the cinematography is rather too sort of shaky, is too handheld and too hyperactive, and well, goes in the bizarre obsession with first person um, shots that really detracted from the rest of the film which is just got so many good ideas and as I said yeah you obviously have the similarities there to Nikita with the young girl being taken in by the secret government agency and receiving sort of very unique and, and traditional sort of training to become a high killer so she's like takes drama and she takes cooking and makeup classes rather than just, you know, if it was like a traditional makeup American movie where you just have her do like you know, gun drills and um terrorist training and all that sort of nonsense. It's interesting it took that Lou Besson approach to how you train someone to be a, a trained killer and certainly so some really lovely camera work in it it's just it's a shame when it comes to the action scenes it really sort of loses its way and it's kind of a shame as well because this is obviously one of the big selling points if anyone who saw in you know, the promo footage of like the motorcycle sword fight sequence will uh, sort of attest to it, it's it's a shame that uh, he couldn't the director Jung bang um, could not obviously calm it down enough for those action scenes you know pull it back a bit you know give it the scene some breathing room and it would have probably really liked it a lot more than I did
1: yeah, I'm I'm sorry you didn't enjoy it, but I I I absolutely hear everything you say. Um, I think that whole charm school for female assassins is is is, is a bit of a sub trope. Um, obviously, you said about Nikita, which is probably the one which which is the main one. But um, I I'm certainly in literature and other films that that's a thing. I think I was just blown away by two things: um, sort of the inventiveness of some of that camera work. Um, it's almost like a computer game, isn't it? The, the sort of the opening scene. Yeah, and um, also the fact that the lead star was Kim Ok If you told me that Kim Ok Bin was going to be an action star, um, uh, I don't know when she when her most famous role was ten years ago. I'd have laughed. I'd have laughed at you. I'd laughed you out of the room. Um, but. I think I, I hear what you're saying and also, you know, Korean cinema is full of great action films, so it's got to be super special to maybe stand out on its own. Um, I remember really enjoying it and really being blown away by it, but I saw it fairly cold and it hadn't been sitting on my watch pile for a long time, so I do wonder if um if some of it's just because you've 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 had it there. But um Um
0: I would say that it's more to do with the fact that we've obviously had like the raid, and we had more more recently, and I think more keenly to this whole situation, uh, The Night Comes For Us, where we've seen where high-octane action sequences have they can be shot and obviously be given that room to, to breathe and to pull the camera back. And obviously, as you pointed out, we've got here someone who's not a traditional uh, sort of martial artist or action hero in Kimok Bin, so... There obviously has to be those conversations be made, but at the same time, it's sort of like, you know, let me see what I'm looking at. I don't want to see like a bunch of flaming limbs and you show me you can spin the camera all the way around um, a fight scene. And it's sort of like, there were so many scenes like when they're the fighting on like the fire escape and it's sort of, they're battling their way down it. And it's all sort of like, you know, if we just pulled back a bit, it would have been just absolutely perfect rather than just like having it so close up so that if someone dashes in, it's sort of like there's this constant disorientation and it just like you know i just really just wanted a little room to breathe um and pull back that camera a little bit just so i can see what i'm looking at and i really would have enjoyed it more and perhaps keep that first person stuff just for the opening yeah so you know it's got that mystery of who is this person that's just going around like (laughs) killing everyone um because i see by the time we get into the later ones it's like i know who she is i know what she's capable of i don't need this uh, first-person effect. It's not adding anything to this scenario, so...
1: Yeah, and then, of course, it goes... uh, We're not going to spoil it, but it goes all very Korean at the end, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) It's a very confusing (laughs) plot, to say the least. And I had to look up on Wikipedia, and it was sort of like, the moustache man and the yellow Teeth man. (laughs) It's like... Oh, this is how we're breaking this down now.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's. It, I I think it's a visual treat, but absolutely, it's got no depth to it whatsoever. Um, and you know, it, it, it. I I hear what you're saying, but I think I will. Um, can we agree to disagree on how much okay. I, uh, we enjoyed it?
0: <laughs> That's uh, fine. So, I mean, has there been anything else that you've you've seen the top? Um, I was just thinking. You know, probably
1: nothing. Um, no, oh, I suppose I saw the Zach Efron serial killer movie, which everyone's talking about, also on Netflix. Um, I kind of enjoyed it, but, but for, for because it was an interesting... It, I thought it took an interesting view on a serial killer by looking at him through people who didn't know him as a serial killer, if that makes sense about the women yeah. around him. I thought Zach Efron was very good. I have huge issues with the film as a piece, as, as a, as a, as a pseudo documentary, if you like, um, because it was seriously playing on real things that really happened. And I wonder if anybody that sort of under 20 years old, even knew that Ted Bundy really was the, one of the most, Penis serial killers of all time. And some of the things he did, you know, they, they wouldn't be showing on screen even if they could. Um, and so the way they sort of almost played it a bit like a bit of a mystery. was oh, is he innocent? Is he guilty? I felt was doing disservice to his victims. Um, but, you know, it's not, um, you know, Zac Efron was brilliant. Um, it's not like Tony Curtis being the Boston Strangler and putting his whole career on the line, though, because he was just like a charming bloke and, uh, and no one's ever really going to tie that back to being a serial killer
0: Cool. well obviously speaking of darker subjects I think it's perfect uh, time to go to a, go go well back to yourself really Stephen um, and uh, turn for us to dive once again into another tale from the dark side of Asian cinema
1: okay Leslie Chung was born as Chung Fat Chung on September the 12th, 1956, in Kowloon, Hong Kong. He was one of ten children of a notable local tailor, indeed notable enough to include Cary Grant and Marlon Brando amongst his clients. His parents divorced when he was young, and eventually he was sent to live with relatives in England, where he went to school in Norwich, and went on to work as a bartender at his relative's restaurant in Southend-on-Sea, where he'd also sing at weekends. It was at this time he fell in love with the film Gone with the Wind, and he adopted his English name of Leslie, apparently after the British actor Leslie Howard. Tellingly, in later life, he would say the unisex nature of the name appealed, and he would also change his Chinese name to Kwok Wing a little later. Clearly planning to stay in the family business, he started studying textiles at the University of Leeds, but dropped out after a year when his father became ill. Upon his father's recovery, he chose not to return to England. Back in Hong Kong, Leslie entered talent competitions, and a runner-up spot from a performance of American Pie got him his first record deal in 1977 with Polydor Records. But he wasn't an overnight success. His first two English-language albums and his first 1979 Cantonese attempt were flops, and there are stories of him being booed at concerts. He dropped out of the music scene for a while, trained as an actor at Hong Kong RTV studios. But Chung was depressed and financially embarrassed. He would stay up all night in local discos, chain-smoking. However, one night in 1982, he met Daffy Tong, a young banker who lent Leslie several hundred dollars to keep him going. This act of charity would affect Chung in both terms of his career and his personal life. Leslie would return to the entertainment scene later in 1982 with a new label, Capital Records, and the results could not have been more different. He released a number of successful albums, and his 1984 song Monica would become the best-selling single in Hong Kong history up to that point. I do recommend you look it up on YouTube, it will be the most 80s thing you have ever seen. His acting career was also taking off, And his real big break was his starring role in John Woo's A Better Tomorrow, although arguably it's Chow Young Fat who became the biggest breakout from this hugely successful film. And to be honest, Chung's character in that film doesn't quite tally with his more popular persona. However, this led to more successes, such as 1987's A Chinese Ghost Story and Rouge, and 1991's Days of Being Wild. In 1989, at the age of 33, Chung announced his retirement from singing, completing this phase of his career with 33 consecutive nights at the Hong Kong Coliseum. He then got a Canadian passport and decamped to Vancouver. He continued to act, although he had retired from performing musically during this period. He was still active enough to write to perform a handful of songs, including the theme to this episode's film, Bride with the White Hair. Although he demanded that producer Raymond Wong promised not to release the song on tape or CD. This did the film no harm at all, with many fans going to the cinema just to hear their idol's new secret exclusive song. This Vancouver sojourn lasted a mere five years, and whilst Chung had continued to act during this period, he had returned to Hong Kong in 1995 and reversed his musical retirement and started to release and tour with new music. But this was somewhat different. Chung had always had an androgynous appeal, but his relationships with women were well documented. At 22, he proposed to the then 17-year-old Theresa Moe on set, although she turned him down, and further relationships with actresses and models were all matters of public interest. Chung himself would be on record stating, My mind is bisexual. It is easy for me to love a woman. It is also easy for me to love a man too. And I believe that a good actor would be androgynous and ever-changing. But in the restrictive times in which he lived, these were more artistic statements than romantic or sexual ones. It's hard to explain with hindsight, but Chung's homosexuality was hidden behind his performances, much like Western stars like Liberace, Elton John and Freddie Mercury. Their homosexuality seems, well, plainly obvious now, but at the time, we didn't know. And it was more of a secret hiding in plain sight. Even his explicitly gay roles in One kar Happy Together and Chen Cage's Farewell My Concubine were maybe more contemporaneously viewed as acting roles rather than a mirror to the man himself. In 1997, however, Leslie Chung put all the speculation to rest and announced during a concert the Hong Kong entertainment industry's worst-kept secret. Remember that kind banker, Daffy Tong, who had loaned the initially unsuccessful Chung a few hundred dollars to get him back on his feet? Well, Chung finally announced that Tong was his partner and they had been in a loving relationship for 20 years, who went on to dedicate a performance of the Chinese classic, The Moon Represent My Heart, to Daffy. The media went wild and were highly critical, but his fans, they loved it. His controversial video for his song Bewildered was about the intimate relationship between two men, one played by himself, the other by Japanese ballet dancer Nishijima Kasuhiro. It was banned by TVB, but Chung stood firm and refused to edit or censor the piece. His final concert tour, the Passion Tour, was a collaboration with Jean-Paul Gaultier, a celebration of Chung's androgyny and bisexuality and although it is lauded today, this tour was ripped to shreds by the local media. With Gautier confessing that he felt humiliated and vowed never to work with any Hong Kong idol ever again. By 2003, things were changing. The golden age of Hong Kong cinema was winding down, and Chung, now in his mid-forties, was struggling to work out his place in the entertainment world. The acting roles were going to dry up, the reaction to the passion tour had soured him with regards to musical performance. His initial dabblings in film directing had come to little. On April the 1st, he found himself alone in a room on the 24th floor of the Hong Kong Mandarin Oriental Hotel. He ordered an orange juice and a pen and paper from reception. As the sun started to set over Victoria Harbour, Leslie Chung climbed over the balcony and leapt to his death. Media speculation went wild. Did he kill himself because he was afraid of getting old? Had he been spooked by his last full role? The ghost story, Senses, where his character had also committed suicide in the same way? But no. Sadly, this was the result of a common factor in many of these tales I bring to you. It's even there in the first word of his suicide note. DEPRESSION! Many thanks to all my friends, many thanks to Professor Felice Le This year has been so tough, I can't stand it any more. Many thanks to Mr Tong, many thanks to my family, many thanks to Sister Faye. In my life, I have done nothing bad. Why does it have to be like this? Daffy would later explain that Leslie had attempted suicide the previous year and had been undergoing counselling for his clinical depression. Despite the ongoing SARS crisis in Hong Kong at this time and the World Health Organization's warning about travelling to the area, his memorial and funeral ceremonies were attended by tens of thousands of fans from all over Asia. His death dominated the column inches for weeks and his songs dominated the airwaves. Both his birthday and anniversary of his death are still memorialised by people in huge numbers each year. Chung left behind 61 films and 31 studio albums alone amongst many other live and collections and he was not just one of the biggest stars from Hong Kong of all time in terms of music and cinema but he remains an LGBT icon and it is somewhat fitting maybe that last year, 2018 he gained his place in the firmament when asteroid 55383 Chung Kwok Wing was named in memory of Leslie Chung Hello everybody and welcome
0: to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, Laverne, and on each episode, myself along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you, because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great flicks to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about, so... Listen to the Cinema Recall podcast on the site thatmomentin.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. Right. Well, on a slightly lighter note now, after, after that, uh, that tale from Stephen there, we obviously have got the new Godzilla movie, which is going to be coming out, I believe, at the end of the month on the Fed, if um, Godzilla King of Monsters. And I mean I don't know about yourself, Stephen, but I kind of liked the, the last American attempt to do a Godzilla movie. I thought it was okay. It was problematic in its approach in the fact it was more of a soldier's tale, should we say, than um anything that sort of resembles a traditional Godzilla movie. Um but I mean I'm I'm hopeful that uh, this new one's going to be be at least half decent.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought the last one was fine. Yeah, a little more, a little less than that. I enjoy Kong, uh, Skull Island a lot more. But yes, this definitely. Is to, this is definitely going to be much more like that, from looking at the trailers. Um, it was, you know, it was also, remember that Shin Godzilla, the last Japanese entry, was pretty po-faced as well, wasn't it? Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, it was more Godzilla War Room, really, wasn't it? Then?
1: <laughs> it, it, it was. Um, so... Yeah, the, the trailers look exciting. Um, there's going to be lots of monsters in it. I'm getting a, a destroy all monsters kind of vibe from it. Um, as long as it's not too po-faced and takes itself too seriously yeah, I think I can have a lot of fun with this. I, mean, I don't need it to be a comedy or a pantomime mm. but I I would like lots of films these days are a bit grey and a bit serious and a bit they they take things or reinvent things, not necessarily for the better. Yeah. Um, but from what I've seen so far, yeah, I'm going to go and see it. Don't get me wrong. Well, I, think, I suspect we'll be talking about it in our next episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll be so so positive on the next one. I don't know, but um, yeah. I mean, my still my main problem is the fact that it's basically basically reskin the Kong model, and it's really clear when you look at the face. It's just that's the Kong. Um, model they're using, and they just reskinned it to a Godzilla face, so he looks too heavy, and it's kind of bizarre now when you see like go- that. See all that footage, of, like uh, Godzilla and King Ghidorah sort of squaring off to each other and engaging in speedy combat rather than waving into each other's general direction and f- launching fireballs and 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 lightning at each other. It's kind of bizarre to see them actually connecting blows now. So that's gonna be kind of bizarre to see, I think. So, but. What I've uh, thought we'd do, uh, obviously, because you know, when you come out, it, you're going to want to know what to, to watch afterwards, really. And while we've oh, the most obvious ones would be, you know, go back, what's the original Gojira, or you watch Destroy Monsters, you said already, which I'm going to leave off this list because, you know I mean, you can go and listen to the, our first Kaiju Christmas and hear our thoughts and how awesome that movie is. So, what I've put together is a little pack of recommendations really for you know things to go back go out and check uh once you've seen this new movie or if you want to watch something going into it which i think you know it, it give you uh some more food for thought there so kicking things off uh is the is mothra from 1961 uh this is uh the film which introduced Mothra to the world, and it's very much a traditional sort of monsters on the rampage, where the scientists kidnap the twins, and Mothra goes on a rampage to to retrieve them back. It's a story we've seen numerous times before. The obvious advantage here is the fact that it's directed by Ishiro Honda, who obviously directed the original Godzilla and sort of set the template of how you shoot monster movies with like low angles and how to give things sort of scale and perspective. And here he does the same with Mothra, who, as I said, he perhaps is not the most visually intimidating of monsters, being, you know, a giant moth. More so in a pupil stage, which just basically just sprays monsters with silly string. But somehow he really manages to give uh, Mothra some presence. And I mean, she is the queen of monsters and if you've read the book gods on my mind it's actually referenced the fact that when they were testing monsters wave audiences that she came back as the most popular amongst female audiences and i can understand i mean she's a rare thing i mean of the Godzilla universe i think it's only her and biolanta who are the only female monsters um so it's uh kind of interesting i'm hoping obviously with the new film that they managed to uh maintain her majesty in Managed to make a work for American audiences. Cause I'm not sure that the uninitiated in these films are really going to buy into the idea of a giant moth, but certainly the footage we've seen of it looks really awesome. Uh, next up is Godzilla vs. Gigan. Now this is a film from the Shara period, which is basically when you think of the Godzilla movies with all the like the giant monster size smackdowns and. Um, aliens and all the sort of B-movie sort of elements The more than likely will become from the shower period we have seen those So again, this is a real One of my personal favourites of the period Not only does it give us Gigan But also gives us Gigan team up with King Ghidorah uh, We also get to see Anglis, Who is probably one of the greatest monsters In the Toho monster universe um, This film is also noted for Toho trying something different And in this movie Godzilla and anglus actually talk If you watch the Japanese version, the words appear as speech bubbles, but obviously for the dub release, uh, you get some really bizarre dialogue exchange between Godzilla and uh, Anglis as they hear a a signal and we must go and investigate in really, really bizarre accents, but um, it's still probably not one of the most strangest things that's happened in the total universe. The most probably the most random being the fact that Godzilla can fly in Godzilla versus Adora, uh in 1971. Um, next up, I would recommend checking out Godzilla vs. Mecha Godzilla uh, from 1974. Again, still in the same period, and I really chose this because Mecha Godzilla is such a talked about and iconic figure within the Godzilla universe and a character that's been brought back time and time again. But this first appearance is initially introduced a fake Godzilla skin to it so Godzilla appears and he's been evil and acting very strange and he beats up Anglas and I mean this film is actually really noteworthy for being a very bloody entry in the the franchise and surprisingly so for this period where everything's pretty light-hearted and this one we get to see a very nasty jaw break on which is uh pretty cringy to see but the film kind of loses its way in the end when we get the introduction of King Caesar who's basically like a giant fooder, uh hound and you know, was perhaps so questionable he didn't appear in- until much later again in Godzilla Final Wars uh, but, you know, the Godzilla character is really cool to look at I and mean, he is just basically a robot Godzilla and it wouldn't surprise me if to- if Legendary Pictures find a way to work him into their universe once they obviously get past the idea of Pitching King Kong versus Godzilla um, Next up we're going to a much darker version of Godzilla With the Return of Godzilla um, Now this is from the Heisei period Which uh, noteworthy for Godzilla being evil And having a much darker feel And Return of Godzilla is certainly no exception As we get to see Godzilla going on a rampage again this, as I said, with this one, I would recommend checking out the original version. Do not check out Godzilla 1984, which, much like Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, which got a really butchered cut, uh, this film got a really butchered cut as well, with a cut in Raymond Burr, who was cut into the American version of Godzilla as the American reporter. And here he was given this role where he apparently has a psychic connection with Godzilla. It's really nonsensical what they do with the plot, and it's just an absolute mess. So do yourself a favour and just watch the original uh, cut of this film if you can get hold of it, which honestly now is just really kind of easy compared to how it used to be back in the day. Um, next up, again, doing the Hayside period, we're going to look at Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah from 1991. This film is really noteworthy for not only giving us an origin story for both Godzilla as well as King Ghidorah, we also get to see a mecha King Ghidorah, in the final sort of showdown between Godzilla and, um, as I said, this revamped version of King Ghidorah. This film is also noteworthy for Godzilla being being turned from good to evil because he's brought resurrected using modern nuclear energy, which makes him evil for whatever reason. But those would be my picks. Uh, as I said, try to do some deeper cuts than just going for the obvious ones. But I think if you enjoy, want to... Uh, to either check out some Godzilla movies before you see the new one, or you're looking for some further viewing. Then those would be certainly the films I would recommend checking out. There is obviously the films of the millennial period, but I think the more, if you're sort of an established fan, yes, they are sort of fun and they have their moments, but there's certainly nothing which sort of stands out of the of the films, obviously from the hayside and uh, obviously the classic shower periods. But yeah, that's uh, my uh, little recommendations there for you. So. Hope you uh have fun checking those out. They are easy to get a hold of on D V D or Blu ray. Uh here in the UK you can pick them up on VHS or, you know, invest in a multi reaching player or I don't know, get creative. You know how to find movies. You're all intelligent people out there, so but yeah.
1: And I guess the next Godzilla movie in Japan will be the first one of the reiwa period. <laughs> so that's
0: well, you say that, but we, I mean, God, Shin Godzilla obviously counts as being in the Reiwa period. We've obviously got the Godzilla animes, which have been on Netflix. We've got those, those those trilogy there, which, I mean, they've been mixed met with mixed reviews, should we say? Mm. Um, but they've obviously tried to introduce King Ghidorah and Mechagodzilla into their uh, versions as well. But as it stands at the moment, we're still waiting to see where... The Japanese productions are going to go next after, obviously, Shin Godzilla. We sparked that interest in these films again, but I, I kind of want a return to a more traditional Godzilla from them. I don't want to see another Shin Godzilla.
1: No, I mean I enjoyed Shin Godzilla, but like you, like as you accurately called it, it's Godzilla Warum, and it's uh, and pl- and plenty of Godzilla films. Godzilla is a secondary character, in his even though he's in the title. Um... You know, and, con- and lots of screen time is concentrated on lots of men and women wandering around worrying about stuff. But uh, yeah. I think there was some structural issues with Godzilla, like when they literally freeze him and stop everything happening <laughs> 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 for a good 30 minutes. Thought, it's the
0: same, yeah, it was the same with Gareth Edwards, like Godzilla of 2014. The fact that we have this introduction of Godzilla, uh, he appears at the airport, he goes to Charles and then we cut to watching it on a TV screen. It's like, what? <laughs> I know you want this, like. You know the audience is is in this world sort of uh, style that you already had with monsters, but you know there's you know your experimental film, and then you have got the Godzilla. I mean, we're all paying to see the giant giant dinosaurs fight each other. We're not paying to watch some guy wander from one side of America to the next.
1: Yeah, um, don't, don't even get me started on that bit of that film. That's, <laughs> that's just uh, but it it, it it. I warm I warm to it eventually. Yeah. Sort of the fight the final act, I warned it, but I thought the middle act was an absolute train wreck.
0: <laughs> True. But, you know, this new one, we get to see Rodan, Mothra, Kingdorra. We've got <laughs> some new monsters yet, which they've managed to somehow keep under wraps, which is really impressive, um, even though they've released the names. So I'm interested to uh, see, what, see where they go. Please do not disappoint me. <laughs> That's all I ask. Because I guarantee... The worst thing is, if they release a bad one I know my friends who know obviously me being the Godzilla fan all I'm going to get is just people saying but what did you think of it and I've got to like say you know someone made a bad Godzilla movie and that would make me sad so don't make me sad
1: (laughs) it'll be adequate at the very least I I don't think it'll be
0: bad Okay, we're going to take a quick break um, to go and recharge recharge, and uh, we'll be back to discuss tonight's feature, The Bridal White Hair. In a world where podcasts already seem to address every imaginable subject,
1: one man broke new ground with seemingly random obsession about exploding helicopters in movies. He was a podcaster on the edge. A maverick broadcaster who played by his own rules. Now, he has a last chance to talk about the strange way he helicoptered exploding film. Exploding Helicopter. Available on iTunes and Podomatic now. Think you know about chopper Fireballs? Think again.
0: And we're back. Obviously tonight our slip featured film is The Bible White Air from 1993 directed by Ronnie Yu, a director who managed to not only make a name for himself in his native Hong Kong, but came over to the States and bizarrely went on this sort of track of directing horror movies as he was responsible for giving us Freddy vs. Jason as well as The Bride of Chucky. Um, He also gave us the Kung Fu Bunny movie Warriors of Virtue and more randomly The 51st State. Um, before returning to Hong Kong to direct the awesome Fearless in 2016 and Saving General Yang in 2013. Um, but, Stephen, I mean, are you familiar with Ronnie Yu at all? to he someone who sort of popped up on your radar at all? Do
1: you know what? He really isn't. Other than this film that we're talking about tonight, <laughs> and Bride of Chucky, yeah. um, I, I, I was... I always have to go I always think it's not him who directs it to be honest with you. I always have in my head that this is a Choi Hark, or at least produced by Choi Hark kind of film. But it's it it's not. Um so yeah, Ronnie Yu isn't isn't somebody who ever springs to mind. But as you've just said, you know, he's 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 left his mark certainly in Fearless, is a is a fantastic film, and this we'll we'll talk about how we feel about this film, but it's certainly a very popular film. Um, And if we look at those film directors who got up and went to Hollywood, we've talked before about some big names who went over and pretty much failed, uh, Troy Hark included. Um, uh, Ronnie you might not have set his sights quite so high, but I think he was more of a success. Certainly Bride of Chucky's a little masterpiece. Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes, in <laughs> <laughs> Brother Chucky, you know Brother Chucky's all right. It, um, I think the thing which threw me off is the fact it's got the the dad from Problem Child, um, <laughs> and um, Bad Santa, and I, he just, I don't know, he just seemed overly off-putting in Brother Chucky. Although I loved, obviously, you know the the, the Tiffany doll, and I loved what uh, where they went. See, went with Chucky and stuff. I thought they, they were really interesting sort of elements to it yeah, maybe. no,
1: I agree, and he make tilly's always good,
0: um, but yeah, I mean, bri White I mean, this was released in nineteen ninety three I remember this coming out uh, around the same time, as was like hard boiled, and really so it was one of those tapes that you you kept seeing everywhere, and for whatever reason, I just never got round to watching, and I think it's because I thought it was like a horror uh film and that's kind of what's up on it. And certainly when you look at the cover, you've got the cackling visage of Bridget Lynn with Snow White's hair. And you think, and obviously you've got these sort of like elements where she, where you get this like idea that she's sort of like this witch sort of character. And, uh, you know, none of that sort of really appealed to me at the time. So finally now getting to sit down and watch it and you find out it's actually kind of like a, a whoosh Romeo and Juliet. Um, with some horror elements worked in there just for good measure. Um, the film itself, if you're obviously uh, not familiar with the story, um, it f- features an honourable swordsman called Zhou Um apologies as always for horrible pronunciations, and he's basically being groomed to take over the leadership of the Wu-Tang Clan while at the same time leading a collaboration force comprised of fighters from the eight major clans to battle this evil... Uh, cult that is threatening to overthrow the kingdom um at the same time he encounters uh this beautiful woman called uh, lian niang chang who from her history where she's been raised by wolves and got brought in to this sort of cult uh to be sort of like their hired killer and uh the two find themselves, you know, finding a connection between themselves and they escape to a cave and work on their relationship only to find the relationship threatened when they return to their respective clans um, and find themselves suddenly opposed to each other. Um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously this is Bridget Lynn here doing, doing her thing, really. Yeah. Um, I mean it's kind of surprising she's not playing an androgynous role for a change which is obviously like her main one of her main sort of uh, things of her of her career we've often talked about before when you like look at Swordsman 2 and 3 where she played a man who castrates himself to gain more power she's uh, when we look at like peaking opera blues again she was uh, in a very androgynous role there as well so I mean how did you you find this movie I've, I personally thought it was a lot of fun
1: well, it wasn't a new movie to me. I've, I've I've seen it a few times before. So yeah. So firstly, what you have here is Bridget Lin and Leslie Chung, two of the biggest icons of the golden age of Hong Kong cinema, and indeed in, in Lin's case, sort of even earlier in Taiwanese cinema. Um, but both famous for their uh, androgyny. <laughs> they're, mm. they're both just beautiful people that could be men or women you know indeed that's what androgyny means isn't it so that you have this central romance which is based around two people who are famous for not necessarily being of their own gender if that makes sense So, i find that kind of interesting there are two words which always spring to mind every time i watch this um or two phrases one is blue there's a lot of blue going on here. <laughs> it's shot through a very blue th- filter. And the other thing is Dutch angles. Um, there's a lot of crazy, weird angles. And did you also feel it was very stagey? Yeah, everything everything felt... It didn't feel so much like a film, but more like a play that was being put on.
0: Um, oh, definitely. The fact everything's shot in almost silhouette... Um which I think modern audiences would would probably get really ticked off, especially Western audiences, the fact that we constantly hear about people complaining that they can't see what's going on. I mean, Game of Thrones recently ticked off a whole bunch of people because they decided to shoot it at night and then ticked off the same people for a whole other bunch of reasons. But, <laughs> um, yeah, with this one, I mean, everything's very shot in silhouette and it, the fact it's almost like this permanent twilight that the film's shot in. But yeah, I can certainly see what you're saying. It's got that very sort of stage um feel to it everything's very sort of like one dimension it's all sort of shot from like the side there's no sort of like um sort of camera work to give any sort of scene, sort of like depth at all it's all as i yeah. said as if it's pl- taking place on a stage as you said
1: but you know again not not a criticism it's just felt very different to other hong kong films of this era now we're, we're used to seeing crazy pans and dolly shots and 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 crane work and waifu and all sorts of things like that. And there's elements, I guess, of waifu in here, but you know, the short brief fighting scenes are I think quite well done. Um you don't want to mess with Bridget's whip, do you? She'll she'll slice you in no. in many parts. Um, and I and I thought that was quite we have we have bodies being sliced to bits and we have decapitated heads in more than one occasion. Um so it's quite graphic for a nineteen ninety three Hong Kong film, I thought.
0: I wouldn't say that it's it's for the period. I mean obviously when you look at other films of the period, I mean you've got things like Lone Wolf and Cub, uh you've got a lot of pop samurai movies at the same same time where it's obviously but they're, love but they're Japanese my blood.
1: Yeah, but they're Japanese films. For a Hong Kong film, outside of Cat Three, which this wasn't, I thought it I thought it was Oh, this is this is interesting. This is a film starring Bridget Lin and Leslie Chung. This is not um this ain't no, like I say like a cat 3 film with second second level celebrity in it these are these are two of the biggest stars and yeah. i guess i put it in the you know would you see many films at the time in the west you know like with madonna and michael jackson throwing um seven heads around. <laughs> <I don't...
0: laughs> well, we all saw the films Madonna made when we look at like, yeah. body of evidence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is true, and I, I, I you can't unsee what a Defoe's penis, can you? <laughs> I, d- I don't know.
0: It was a whole awakening for young Elwood. Body of evidence was. Um, I think body of evidence really was one of those tapes that got passed around in in hushed hushed classrooms of like you know if you if you found a film with uh, with some decent nudity. in it suddenly became like, like the hot commodity tape that was like passed around uh, because you know these pre-internet days you had to find your you find your thrills elsewhere you know either on like film or railway sidings in abandoned magazines and stuff and anyway but no I would say I, the violence itself I mean outside of like the sort of Russia and the martial arts genre I mean there are obviously examples of of violence in in these films I mean John Woo is certainly he's obviously doing his heroic gunplay movies at this time which is indeed indeed yes Um, that's true but yeah it's for the type of story it's saying and to have like scenes where as you said Bridget Lynch he's got a chain whip so if you play a lot of Soul Calibur you would know Ivy's weapon of choice is a, a chain whip or a snake sword uh where she, here she's got the ability so she can use it as a sword she can use it as a weapon here she uses it to great effect i mean the opening sort of scene of her demonstrating her abilities we get a guy like chopped to, to little pieces so he's sort of like from the head down he's suddenly like reduced to bits of pieces we see arms locked off it's really exciting sort of martial arts um and sort, sort of swordplay play work there and it it's surprising how actually how little there is of it in this film because we have like that opening scene and then we get a lot of scenes of uh, of the two lovers sort of, um, obviously Lucy Chung, Bridget Lin here as um, they're sort of hanging around in a cave and having sex in in pools and hanging out under waterfalls and I love the fact that uh, one of the key words for that IMDb have described it um, as is. Kissing while having sex is one of their plot keywords. But yeah, if you want to watch, watch two beautiful people frolicking around in a pool. Um, I don't know why they choose hanging in a cave. Well, the, but, I don't
1: I they're hang around in a cave because they're hiding out. Because um, yeah, but still, but, there's, there's but, many but,
0: places you can hide. That well, aren't like I'm a damp pretty, cave. I'm pretty
1: certain flapping around in a damp cave in the middle of the night in your clothes is not the most sexy time that you could have. That's, uh, in fact I'm pretty 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 certain on that. So yeah, but it's it's I mean it's it, the, the the sort of the tech credits and the if you look at the people, you know, I've talked about that um it's got two of the biggest stars of Asian cinema at the time in it. But the um costumes were designed by Emi Wada who also did the costuming for Kurosawa's Karasara's Ran and yes. Zhang Yamu's hero. The art director is Eddie Ma, who worked Extensively with Choi Hark. And the cinematographer is Peter Powell. And Peter Powell is one of my favourite cinematographers. Um, and I guess most famous for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So we've got, you know, behind the camera and in front of the camera, this is this is almost like a 1990s Hong Kong cinema in a, uh, in a little package, certainly in terms of of that more artsy side of
0: things. Definitely so. I mean, certainly it's obviously got the Wisha elements there, and as we've seen things like new, uh, new Dragon Gate in. But at the same time, it's not taking it in such a artistic direction. We've got very sort of like, as I said, these very sort of like pop summary elements to it. So it sort of like ties into things such as like Chinese ghost story, um, magi- words, uh, where is it? uh huh. Mexican Zoo Warriors for the Magic Mountain. There we go. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's some some combination of those words. So you've got those those sort of fun elements to it as well and as you, as I said the fact that it's got got Bridget Lynn uh, in it which is is never a bad thing. It does get perhaps a little melodramatic in places um such as when we see Leslie Chung post romancing a uh, post-romance scene. So they leap on top of a on, on top of a pillow to proclaim to the heavens that uh, if he should betray her that he should be struck down and it's like, okay, calm down, you know yeah,
1: because because that ain't gonna end badly, is it? it it's sort of like <laughs> sets
0: things up. it's all sort of like oh, well I guess he's only gonna end one way.
1: I'm gonna Im gonna say, never promise a woman anything after sex yeah your, your brain's not screwed in properly, Leslie, but you know.
0: certainly not in an Asian film cause We <laughs> we know we know it's only gonna end badly. Most interestingly, though, here is our villain here. Um, oh, yes. he's ju Wen Wenchang, <laughs> who are a pair of conjoined twins, uh, one male, one female. And uh, basically, they, they switch back and forth. Um, here, played by Francis Ning and Elaine Liu. Um, really interesting villain. As I said, they're, con- they're conjoined twins. They're joined at the back. And initially, when they're introduced, it's sort of like, uh, obviously, you see Francis Ning, and he's talking to Bridget Lynn's character, and um, he's doing his weird cult, and then suddenly he turns into a woman, It's like, is this a magic trick, or what? what's going on here? And then we obviously see him later, and he's infatuated with Bridget Lynn's character, and he's like butchering his arms up, and it, this is a real sort of like nod to, um, to Browning's freaks, in his conjoined um, sisters, where one there's a scene where one of them's uh, kissing her boyfriend and the other is seen reacting here we get to see a similar thing where he's carving his arm because he's so frustrated the fact he can't be with bridget lynn and she's just like rejecting him and he wants to make her his bride and at the same time we've got lane lou's character and she's like howling and sort of cackling because she's feeling all the pain that he's inflicting on them and this sheet that's covering like comes uh comes away and we just see those like webbing between them and it's so cool and as I said, this is just such a unique villain. I don't know of any other conjoined twin villains in cinema at all. So. Well,
1: not. Well, no. I mean, this is probably my favourite bad guy in any Asian film. You know, and we, and We've watched some weird shit, haven't we, over the years in, in sort of <laughs> more modern Japan, you know, Takashi Mikey stuff. But this is, in the context of what this film is. That's just crazy mental villain. Where did Earth do they get the idea from? Francis Union in particular is just having a ball with it, isn't he? I don't know why he talks the way he does. Um, in mean, like a vocoder-style voice. But
0: um, Well, I, I have get- to ask as well, did you watch the dub version or did you watch the subtitle version? I watched subtitles. Okay, so it's just me who watched the dub version. And, I mean, I really like the dub version because I mean, this is a 90s dub, so it's got a real warm feeling to it. It's not... Like um, the dubs we have now, which can be really great or sometimes feel a little sterile. This one's got such a nice warmth to it, and certainly for a film this (laughs) random um, and the pacing of it, it just works. The dub works well for me. But as I said, the option is obviously there to watch it subtitled if you're a purist. So,
1: yeah, I'm a purist. (laughs) There's downsides to watching dubs, Um, which, uh, which not dubs. Watching reading subtitles that I get kind of tired so if a film's longer than about 100 minutes I'm not going to see it through to the end because I'm just tired of my eyes going around, especially if it's quite wordy. So the other thing I really liked about this, you mentioned at the beginning, it's it's kind of a, um, a Romeo and Juliet kind of story, isn't
0: it? Yeah, I mean the um, opposing clans and, you know, the star-crossed lovers.
1: Yeah, and, a- and actually what I found really interesting about it was, is that um... It, it, I can't remember what it says. What it calls it in the subtitles, but if you, um, its title in, so we know it's Bride of the White Hair, and that's based on a, 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 a an old, we're well, not that old, but a, a, a legend and a Wuxia novel, and this character is in other films. Um, also used in what was that, um, that American sort of thing with Jackie Chan and Jet Li. Where they drew upon a lot of these legends um what, forgotten kingdom forgotten kingdom, yeah. so uh Li Bingbing plays bribe with the white hair in that, so it's it's a sort of common character, but actually the title's called Jiang Hu behind B- behind between love and glory, and it's actually what the story's really about isn't so much about this love story of these these people, it's about um a guy, Leslie Chung's character who is part of this uh, jianghu have we have we spoken about the jianghu before it's quite a common concept in wuxia and also more modern um uh, sort of uh, criminal gangster sort of films from asia um so i'll go all professor mode now so the, yes. the jianghu is the underworld so um in the past and talk about this like confucian society you have all the scholars and the priests and they're the uh they're, they're that's the top level you know uh, education is the important thing there and then everybody else the people who work with the hands the artisans the the builders the but the cooks the candle makers and the martial artists um are view to belong to the Jiang Hu and that is used in a more modern time um in gangsters so a bit like the Amerta that the, 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 the that they have in the mafia films where they yeah. you don't you don't talk outside it so people belong to a Jianghu so there's actually there's actually a really good modern gangster film called Jianghu which is, is using that. But this is this is this is a film which is really interesting because Leslie Chung's character is trying to break that. He's trying to get in. You know, he's a member of the Wu, the Wu Tang Clan, because he's like Ghostface Killer, old dirty bastard, isn't no. <laughs> He's he's a, he's he's a member of the Wu Tang Clan, but he wants out. And I can't think of many films where people want out of the Jianghu. They um, and certainly. Not just for love, but just in general. He's a, he's a lover, he's not a fighter, he's a trickster, not a killer. I know. think he
0: was, it's clear from the start where he's supposed to be learning sword techniques, yet he's buggering around with these two crickets doing... Yeah. I don't know what with these bloody crickets, but yeah, as you said, he's a he's a pacifist, really, at heart. He just wants to go and live in exile. He doesn't want to be caught up in this whole
1: and you've got You've got to wonder why his master just wants him to be the leader. <laughs> he's, he's so he's, palpably unsuited for the role. Because he's
0: a natural. This is the thing. Even though he's bugging around with these credit, critics, uh, he's bugging around with crickets, and he can like, even though he's been paid no attention, he can just like leap into the air and do these amazing sword um, skills with like no apparent difficulty whatsoever. So he's like this prodigal s- child um, who's going to obviously lead the clan? And as I said, I think because actually, you, you're funny, funny jokes. Um, <laughs> the way, Whenever you say Wu Tang, it it's, it's so warped in our mind now, isn't it? Just to <laughs> it go, oh, what, Reese and. Yeah. Oh, oh Dirty Bastard ghost Ghostface Killer. Yeah.
1: It is. This isn't the film which the, the the band took their name from, but it is the same clan. The Wudan Clan is the same. It's the same. It's a, it's, a, it's a it's a historical fact of a place. I think they took it out from one of the Shaolin films, didn't they? Um, but it's yeah. I just I just thought it was really interesting that this this. It is a pacifist hero. It is a hero that first principles doesn't want to be where he is you know we often see in these films maybe something goes wrong and someone goes into hiding and they say oh i'm not a martial artist anymore so if you remember the the male character in um the golden swallow film we watched um come drink with me yeah it is come drink with me yeah it's come drink with me i would have called it come dine with me for a minute which is a whole different other thing but you know that character had kind of sort of been in part of the Jianghu, but he had just withdrawn and and gone off and lived on his own, which is another common trope. And um, this is I just found this was quite rare. Um, and then of course we have the similar thing with the cult and and uh, and the Wolf Bridget Lynn's character, the, the Wolf Girl trying to get out in a similar way. And that's kind of brutal. Her exit from that world. I mean, Leslie Chung isn't allowed to leave that world, whereas she's allowed to leave it via some terrible sort of. Throwing shit at her, <laughs>
0: uh, it's, yeah, walk gets, of shame, sort of thing. She does get her own walk of shame, where she's just be, basically has the the living hell beaten out of her. Yeah, and um, even then, it's not really clear that she's out. Um, it seems <laughs> that it seems sort of like, oh, you've gone against against the uh, the clan. We're just gonna basically really make you regret that decision. So it it really adds into the sort of end game here, uh, where. I mean, we're just going to... I think we're just going to say spoilers here. Um, and when we finally get this transition into the Bride right? Her, because it, it only happens, like, the last quarter, that she becomes this, this mythical figure, and it all ties into this sort of betrayal that uh, she feels. It's the idea of the the scorn woman being transformed. And it's, again, very much the case here. Here she gains, like, these super mythical powers once she becomes the bride, and... Has the ability to like strangle opponents with her hair and just like already add to her impressive uh sword skills so she can launch butter heads across the room and somehow um our conjoined twins are able to withstand a giant butterhead being falling on them which I still don't understand how that worked but never mind
1: me either
0: <laughs> um but I mean were you disappointed in the fact that the film's called The Bride with White Hair, but the it the whole origin story is three quarters of this film. It's it's almost like a when we look at the old school superhero movies where they only become like Spider Man or Batman in the last quarter and the rest of it's just sort of busy work.
1: Well, I think it was about I mean I think as I said, <coughs> the Bribe with White Hair isn't the name of the film in its natural language. Like, that's a westernized um conceit. Um I don't think the sequel either is actually called The Bride with White Hair. It's called something along the same lines. Um, just two in the end. Um, so that's it. It is a bit odd, but I think because I've seen this film so many times, I don't really see it that way. But I wonder if I went back to when Stephen first saw this film years and years ago, whether I was wondering when we're we going to wrap. Up? Her hair doesn't look very white to me. She's she's never a bride. <laughs> they never, they never no. get married. Um, so a bit bit of false advertising there, but then when it does happen in the final act, it is quite impressive. Um, you know, she, she's really sort of interesting thing going on. The other thing was obviously there's a there's a sort of a we start at the end, don't we, in the film, and we 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 start by meeting Leslie Chung ten years hence, um, waiting for this this magic flower to bloom. Um, And I thought that was really strange because I think that might have worked better at the end, don't you?
0: Possibly so. Um, It it is, as you said, it's a little little disjointed, and as to where it sort of all ties ties in, but at least it bothers to come full circle at the end. It does. Um, But yeah, I mean, what's the alternative really? I mean, he's introduced kicking some ass at the start. If we cut that out, he's introduced bugging around with credit crickets it's all like how do you how do you, want, <laughs> how do you want to sell your sell your thing you know badass swordsmen cricket bovera
1: <laughs> I see what you're saying from that point of view i just thought i just thought it was um it was kind of an impressive opening, but it then took a long time to get to be that kind of film again but yeah he ho that's um that's, but there's just some sometimes in these films. You have to put up with some strange decisions, especially in Hong Kong films. where Quite clearly, they're making them up as they're going along. But I don't think that was the case here. This feels like, despite all the weird stuff, co-joined twins (coughs) and um, writhing around in water and Hmm. the very deliberate casting of two androgynous leads, um, it's a really well put together piece of cinema. I really like it. And I think you're saying you you like it as well. Oh
0: yeah, I I really enjoyed it. It made me want to go back and see what else I've been missing in the one of you
1: yeah. catalog.
0: I mean, obviously there is a sequel, um, the Bride of White Hair Two, which he came back to as a producer for, and it's directed by David Wu.
1: It's it's fine. It's not in this this film's um, class, but actually, I I see quite a split. A lot of people don't get it. A lot of people. Not always Asian cinema fans, maybe sort of action fans, mm. look at look at this. And I think they're expecting more action for a film from this era. Um, maybe because it's Ronnie Wu. Um, Ronnie Yu, sorry. Just give him a different family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I see quite a lot of people saying, oh, I don't really get this, don't really understand this, or... Well, the bride's pretty cool, but she chops somebody up with a whip. That doesn't make any sense, and and <laughs> I do see a surprising amount of negativity towards a film which I had su I had assumed was a was a stone cold classic. So I'm quite glad you liked it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I mean, I don't understand what the negativity is. I mean, yes, it's obviously a little melodramatic in places, should we say? But then again. A lot of the cinema that we watch, especially on this show, certainly is melodramatic, so I think I've become immune to that now. Um, but you know, it it delivers how I want it to to play. I mean, it makes I still don't understand how these people are raised by wolves. I mean, this is the second time, obviously, we've seen Protestant Monoki characters being raised by wolves. Um, and uh, we've obviously got Bridget Lynn's character again being raised by. The wolves, here it never really bothers to explain how that situation came to be. She's sort of introduced as a child, but it seems that she's just able to control wolves with the use of her flute. Uh, not that she was actually being raised by them, but that's sort of filled in a bit later in, in the actual film. But I mean, the actual fantastical sort of martial arts sequence is a lot of fun, as we said, to the fact she uses her hair to strangle opponents. Uh, um, she's got all these like super. Sword women um, abilities. It's it's just a lot of fun fun there. Even though there is these really long scenes of and Leslie Chung frolicking in a in a cave, which I don't know. I was watching it and the whole time. I just kept thinking, oh, is that where that strip has got that sequence from?
1: <laughs> yeah, I I I I I really enjoy it. It's a real it's a real classic. But it's kind of interesting. It's probably one of those sort of last hurrahs for this that particular era of Hong Kong cinema. You know, the the we're getting towards the mid eighties and the wuxia film is going to become a less popular thing. It almost feels like on a cusp. Yeah, you know, we're going somewhere else. We're going a bit horror. We're going a bit somewhere else. Obviously in the rest of the Hong Kong over is going to go much more into crime. Sort of Johnny Toe kind of areas, uh John Woo kind of areas. Um, they remade this a couple of years ago with, I want to say fan being, Bing in it, but I could be wrong. Um, and they missed the point completely. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most horrible mainland Chinese remakes of a film I've seen for a long time. And that's, that's a show in all of, of itself. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's a, I think it's a it's a must watch, and I'm glad you've got it off your uh, cinema shame.
0: Definitely. Uh, further viewing, if you obviously like *Bride with White where would you sort of go from here, really?
1: Yeah, so I was thinking about. Uh, um, I think I couldn't look much further myself than the two leads. Yeah, you've already mentioned one of the films I was going to recommend. So for Bridget Lynn in a Woosha kind of film, but in a more Bridget Lynn-y kind of role, I was going to go for Swordsman Two, mm. or Swordsman Two. What did I say? Did I say Swordsman Two? Uh, yeah, yeah, Swordsman Two, where she's a, yeah, she's a she's a, a crazy eunuch. But that's a huge amount. That's a huge amount of fun, and actually is another one of the classics. Um, watching the first Swordsman film is not required, but it is a sort of sequel. Um, and then in terms of Leslie. And Woosha films. Um I sort of got two films in one, which is one Carway's Ashes of Time or Ashes of Time Redo. The sort of the he went back to it sort of ten odd years later and tarted it up and took all the action out and made it look a much better film, but sort of totally changed its its tone. Um Leslie's fantastic in it. And I guess if you want another Leslie Chung film in this 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 sort of period um, you Chinese ghost story with uh, Joey Young is probably, uh, I think this was just, this was five that was like five years before this wasn't it? But that that's that's the other sort of standard of the genre for Leslie Chung films, where he's looking immensely beautiful with an immensely beautiful woman, and they uh, have an ill-fated romance. But this time it's with a ghost, not with a a crazy wild witch.
0: So, <laughs> yeah. Um I mean as i said already, I think the one the film which jumps out to me at the most will be Chinese Ghost Story Two. Um I mean yes you it does follow one from Chinese Ghost Story One, but I found part two a lot more fun. Um certainly there's a lot more fantastical elements in there. And uh yeah, I think it's I it just takes me back to that sort of early sort of period of getting into Asian Cinema and seeing these sorts of movies and it being that sort of cross that Boundary line between the sort of kung fu cinema that was watched at the time and really going into some something a bit different, the more sort of fantastical sort of elements there. And and um, yeah, Chinese ghost story 2 is sort of like the one that I really sort of go to. And if you aren't obviously looking at the swordsman movies, which you said already, either swordsman two or uh, swordsman three, these is red with both of which are a lot of fun. I would skip over swordsman one. I didn't really do much for myself. um and certainly, if we're just talking about just warriors in exile, I think just check out um, Jimmy Wang Yu's One armed Swordsman. Again, the idea of a fighter putting himself into exile this time mainly because he's lost an arm um, and decides to go off and generally to put his weapons to uh, to earth, only to be sort of like drawn back into the fray. Um, I think it's a really good sort of film in this similar sort of vibe. Some. Yep, yeah, I agree. Um, so that wraps up another edition of the Ace and Seven Film Club we hope you've enjoyed listening as always please do follow us on like us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram uh, wherever you happen to get your social media from Uh, you can also listen to all our shows both on thatmomentin.com which has got our full archive you can also check out the our blog which is Asian Cinema Film Club dot Again, we've got the full archive up on there. We also got some film articles. We've got uh, the mixtape series, we've got transcripts of the dark side of Asian cinema, we've got the anime vault, we've got a whole bunch of really cool stuff happening over there, so definitely go check it out. And you know, wherever you happen to be listening to the show, make sure you hit the like and subscribe button. Leave us a rating. It really helps raise the profile of the show and lets more people discover us. Same same way. If you uh, know a fan, someone who's into Asian cinema, or do you just want to spam your enemies, let them know about this show. We really appreciate all the uh, the work uh, that you guys go to, you know, liking and, uh, and following us on, and the various bits that we put out there. So thank you as always. But Stephen, it is your turn to pick next. What would you like to choose?
1: Well, I took some inspiration from you, because this time you chose a film that was, was uh, I don't know if it was on your cinema shame list, but it's certainly on your to watch pile.
0: Yeah, it's more in the watch pile.
1: Um, so I thought, well, what, what film haven't I watched that I've got and I've had for a long time and I should have really got round to it? And my eyes turned to uh, a pile of CDs that I had, DVDs that I had, sorry, not CDs. And <laughs> I realised... Well, of course not. <laughs> well, I've got a pile of CDs, I've got a pile of everything. Or part of anything you want here, but <laughs> any kind of entertainment. But um, we talk about Park Chan Wook a lot. Um, I'm a big, big fan of most of his films, and yet I've never seen Thirst. So I would like to propose that we both watch um a Korean modern take on the vampire myth with um the villainess herself in it. Yeah. So yeah, so I'd like to watch Thirst.
0: Fantastic. Um, so. Well, thank you. Uh, that'll be on our next episode. Thank you as always for listening, and thank you to my host, Stephen. Pleasure as always. Um, obviously, your solo show, uh, the Guillos World, Guido Ramblings World Tour, uh, is still ongoing at the moment. Uh, you just recently posted your, uh, your Wings of Desire Downfall episode, and you said you've got your Marvel episode out as well. And I've got another episode out now. I
1: had a bit. I had a bit of a uh, bit of work, so I've just. Um,
0: in well, I
1: get depends when this comes out, but I've recently done my, I've done another episode, which my brain has just gone, what that's about, and possibly very soon, I'll have um I'll have one with um some 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 Eastern European fairy tales, some something from uh, Jan Svankmajer and uh, an Estonian fairy tale movie. So I'm sort of floating around different bits of. Bits of Europe now and steering away from some of those more obvious places.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Um, but again, thank you everyone for listening and make sure you join us next time where we'll be discussing first. But until next time, good night. もうの声は忘れて昨日のあの声は忘れ